Want access to richer content and exclusive analysis on the business of sport? Sports Pro Plus is used by experts across the industry to make informed decisions, with two membership tiers offering access to original content, exclusive reports, and a suite of business intelligence tools. Become a member today at sportspromedia.com forward slash subscribe and use the code FCPOD10. That's FCPOD10 at checkout for a 10% discount. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football. Hello and welcome to the Football Co. Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Manby. And today I'm talking to Alexi Lalas, who became an internationally recognised and indeed iconic name playing at the 1994 World Cup in a tournament which sowed the seeds for football to flourish in the US. After that tournament, Alexi had a successful career in Italy and the US, plus a brief stint in Ecuador, finishing his playing days at LA Galaxy, where he would later be named president of the club. Today, Alexi is a broadcaster seen regularly on Fox Sports in the US and remains a passionate fan of the US national team. So on today's show, we'll discuss USA 94, the changing perception of football in the US, that David Beckham signing, and his hopes and expectations for Qatar 22, just days out from the tournament start. Alexi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. You read that exactly as I wrote it. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, pleasure to be on with you today and uh, to look back and, and forward. Fantastic. Well, I want to start by looking back uh, at USA 94. And I think it's worth putting a bit of context in place here. This tournament took place two years before the MLS even started. It took place 10 years after the NASL was disabled. And yet here you are with the US national team representing the host nation in the World Cup. What was soccer like at the time in the US? Did the media take it seriously? Did fans? Yeah, I mean, it was it was Wild West. Um, look, I, I'm, I am sitting behind this microphone and talking to you uh, <laughs> from uh, my house here in Los Angeles because of the World Cup in 1994. Uh, it changed my life forever. I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. But more importantly, I saw what it did to my sport uh, from around the world in terms of the perception, but more importantly, internally in terms of the perception. And it fundamentally changed. It was a marker, if you will. And I tell this story all the time. A couple of weeks before the World Cup in 94, I got on a plane, uh, took my middle seat, which is how we traveled back then uh, as a national team. And I sat down next to an older woman and we struck up a conversation and she eventually said, you know, what do you do? I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, well, what's your job? I said, well, I, I play soccer. And she said, well, what do you do for money? <laughs> I said, I play soccer. And two weeks later, I'm in front of a billion people playing in the World Cup. And I only use that to dramatically illustrate how strange the landscape was, but the potential that existed. And you know, whether that's that that woman uh, who went on over the next month to have a greater appreciation for the game or maybe more importantly, an entire generation that I still meet to this day that comes up to me and says that summer fundamentally changed the way that I look at the game. And then a few summers later with the 1999 Women's World Cup. But, you know, that is a, a marker, like we say, in terms of this incredibly strange uh, and actually long history of soccer in the U.S. That is a huge, huge seminal moment when it comes to how everything fundamentally changed for how we look at the game, how we play the game and how we approach the game. So here's a bit of trivia for you. But, and this surprised me when I was doing a bit of research. 
because I was I was sort of trying to work out, you know, what was the U.S. audience like at that time, and my concept, my perception at the time, which maybe was a misperception, was that nobody knew anything about the game and nobody cared about the game. It has that U.S. '94 uh, World Cup is still to this day the highest average attendance at any World Cup, sixty-nine thousand people. So, who were these people? Were they soccer fans? Did they come from other countries, or do U.S. sports fans just love a big event and they just wanted to get involved because they knew it was happening on their on their territory? Well, people absolutely came from other countries, and so you know the the tourism aspect of the World Cup, um, the ability to check the box of both going to a World Cup and going to the United States, that was absolutely something that happened. And you know we we played games in outside of Detroit in Pontiac, Michigan. Okay, I grew up in Detroit, and Pontiac had never seen soccer, certainly to that level, and had never kind of welcomed in the world. So absolutely, there were people coming from the outside. But what was also interesting was this coming out party for an entire nation of soccer fans that either were, you know, just under the surface or were just, you know, sensitive or even at times embarrassed uh, at their fandom. And look, I, I believe that I'm, you know, living in the greatest country in the world. And part of our greatness, I think, stems from our incredible diversity. And through that diversity, we have fans of the game and also fans of national teams and countries that aren't necessarily our own. That's changed over the years. But the reality is that the people that populated those stadiums and the people that watched that World Cup were fans of the game. And we're all of these different ethnicities and nationalities that make up this melting pot that is the United States. We have a lot of soccer fans. We had it back then. and We have even more right now, which just makes me so excited about what's going to happen in 2026. You know, the fact is that they're desperate. Uh, they're disparate, right? They're, they, they follow so many different teams because of, you know, the cultural diversity that we have in our country. And I think that that was on display. I mean, you look at you know, the Italian-American community that we have, the Mexican-American community have, the Irish, all, all of these different things, it came to bear. And there was this celebration through the game of our country, within our country, by a lot of people that had this connection to this game that were given this outlet uh, in that moment. It was, it was wonderful to see kind of everybody come out of the woodwork and celebrate this game in different ways through their different teams. I think everybody remembers their first World Cup, or all soccer fans do. I certainly remember my first World Cup, and it was USA 94, and maybe I'm kind of giving my age away a little bit there. But I remember it just having this kind of flamboyance, this showmanship. And I don't think that was just because it was my first World Cup. I remember it kind of being like that. And I remember the US national team as well, because I didn't know anybody on the US national team. You know, I'd been following football for enough years that I knew most of the countries, I knew a lot of the players, but I didn't know anything about the US national team. And it felt like you guys embodied what was going on with the tournament as a whole, which was this sort of everything that you're just talking about there, about the US kind of putting the front foot forward and putting on a show um, for the world. Did you see it like that at the time or were you just trying to win as many games as possible? Uh, yeah, we saw it. I mean, it was to a certain extent strategic and certainly from a individual perspective, I recognized that this was an opportunity and a platform. Also, it was the 90s, you know, <laughs> and so big kind of flamboyant, colorful, uh, in-your-face types of aesthetics were part of the 90s. Um, you know, I, I have always considered myself a performer and an entertainer, and that's not a pejorative. I, I look at myself as 
you know, a, I, I rehearse, which is the same thing as training. Uh, I get up on stage, which is the same thing as going out on a field. I wear a costume, which is the same thing as my uniform. And I project a character and play a character, which is what I did. And so, you know, the the aesthetic that I had personally, you know, with the hair and, and the goatee. And then you add on this costume that was very, very big, bold, brash, arrogant American, you know, faux denim and stars and stripes and all that kind of stuff. I think it resonated at home, but I think to your point, I think it also resonated around the world. And I knew, and we knew as a team that we were introducing ourselves to our own country, but also to the world and that people were tuning in and we're going to make, you know, right or wrong, fair or not, judgments about where we were in the world pecking order of soccer relative to what happened on the field. And as a host nation, um, you know, in the past, all the host nations were kind of bigger countries within the game. And so there was a real pressure on us to get out of the group because that equated to success and credibility Um and an acknowledgement of we are on the right path. And that's easier said than done. Um, but that was the goal of the team was to make a mark individually, collectively, and ultimately to set soccer forward and, you know, on its way, hopefully by the resonance that we had internally from our, you know, from our country, but also the resonance around the world. Were you aware, going back to that point about personally what you look like the goatee the hair yeah. you know it is an iconic image um you know i think people think u.s men's national team 94 and it's your face that they see were you aware of that at the time or was that just you you know guitar playing rocker <laughs> you know putting your you know showing what you're about because you said at the start of the podcast that actually everything that happened that tournament laid you know with the first stepping stones on you know for everything else that happened after that at the time, were you aware this is brand Alexi Lalas and this yeah. is my chance to show the world? Or was it just one of those things? So you, you said the word brand there, right? Back then, we didn't call it a brand. Nowadays, it would be called a brand and you would cultivate your brand. Um, you know, I grew up in the, in the 70s and 80s and, and certainly in the 80s where there was a do-it-yourself type of mentality. And I equated everything with music. I was heavily involved in music, still am. And the aesthetic in music, especially in the 80s, uh, was vital uh, with the advent of MTV and, uh, you know, the visualization of this genre, uh, this music, right? And so I knew that it was something that I wanted to project. And sometimes when you say that it's that it was calculated and cultivated, people associate a lack of authenticity. That's not the case at all. I was incredibly comfortable in the persona that I was inhabiting and the character that I was and the aesthetic that I was cultivating. Uh, and because it, it came from me, but I also recognized the impact and the effect that it had out there. And I didn't want to be a just a shrinking violet. And I didn't look at sports, and in this case, soccer, as um, above that or anything. And I knew that, you know, eyes were going to be on you. Now, with that attention comes expectation and responsibility. And you can't just be a clown, even though you may look like a clown, you have to back it up. Even if you're a clown, by the way, you got to entertain and you got to be on your game when it comes to uh, being a clown. And so I, I recognized that the balance needed to be there in terms of playing well, as a team and individually, if you're going to look the way that 
I did individually and look the way that we did as uh, as a team. And we didn't we didn't take that lightly. But yeah, I, I I knew exactly what I was doing and I don't apologize for it in in the least. And like I said, I inhabited that persona for for a long time and it was incredibly comfortable and obviously incredibly rewarding. I want to just, um, some people look at this podcast on YouTube and they see the video, but more people listen to the audio sure. on, on your podcast platforms. And I just want to quickly let those who are listening in know what your background is. There is a <laughs> huge United States of America flag behind Alexi's head, flanked on either side with two guitars. So, uh, you know, talk about authenticity. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, Alexi, I think it'd be an interesting com- comparison to do USA 94 versus Atlanta 96, which of mm-hmm. course you participated in both. And I'm talking more about how you felt um, the media scrutiny, how you felt the public pressure. On the one hand, you got USA 94, it's just football. Everybody's just focusing on the US men's national team on the pitch, but you're the underdogs. Nobody's really expecting you guys to do anything. You haven't won a game in 44 years at the World Cup, right? On the other hand, you've got the 96 games, where the USA has to finish top of the medal table because the US always finished top of the medal table and it's on home soil as well. So you kind of think, okay, more pressure, but then it's more Michael Johnson um, and you know the rest of those guys who are probably getting more pressure. So what was the comparison you'd make between the two? Yeah, it's such a weird uh, situation that we have in the United States with our relationship soccer-wise to the Olympics um, because we all know that from a, from a soccer perspective, the World Cup is far and away a much greater, not, not not just accomplishment, but platform, right? And yet, you know, growing up in the United States, it's always been about Olympics, 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 Olympics. And ha- having played in a World Cup first and then going to an Olympics, it, it wasn't a letdown, but sharing that stage, like you said, with so many other sports and so many other athletes and those, you know, those different uh, sports and athletes you know, taking the air, if you will, and the opportunity out of it, it, it made it very, very different. Uh, but again, being a host, it's, I think it's a very different experience for a player and for a team when you are part of a host nation, because there is an added responsibility, a desire to do well, not that it, you wouldn't have a desire someplace else, but it's added when it, when it happens in, uh, in the States. But if I had the comp- compare the experiences, even though we didn't do as well in the Olympics, it's still far and away. Uh, the World Cup completely blows an Olympics out of the water for a number of the things that uh, that I talked about there. But to your point, now with a more educated public and with more progress and evolution in the sport in the United States, there was higher expectation. There continues to be higher expectation. And that's a good thing. That is that is a necessary and and actually a positive outcome of success and of growth. When you talk about more educated fans, what do you think the difference is between your average US soccer fan today and that of 1994? Are they more knowledgeable, more passionate? Are there just more of them? What are the major differences? Th- well, so there's definitely more of them. And you can look at everything from you know the advent of Major League Soccer, which started in 1996, uh, or NWSL, uh, and, and a bunch of leagues that have come there, but also, you know, simple things like, well, not simple things, but um, incredibly impactful things like the FIFA game or something like that. You, we have a whole generation now that has grown up with soccer being part of their accepted sports palette out there. And you know, that's a 
that's a good thing. I always argue that I think uh, that American soccer fans are the most um, educated out of necessity because we are constantly either ourselves doing it or having others do it, comparing, contrasting with the rest of the world. Uh, we follow all of these different leagues. It's amazing to me sometimes when people come over to the United States and they see the incredible amount, I mean, a plethora of of options when it comes and, uh, you know, a steady stream, literally a stream of soccer that is available to us on a day in day out basis. I mean, it is a glut, but it also means that we follow all of these different leagues and we have our domestic associations and affiliations. We have our international ones, whether it's club or like I said, other national teams out there. And so I think that, you know, the U S soccer fan is incredibly educated. Like I said, it is discerning. It is passionate it is incredibly protective of what we have kind of created over here, which while a part and a member of the game internationally, we've created our own little version of it over here in terms of our fandom and how we go about that each and every day. And it's been fascinating to see it grow and morph into what it is, uh, what it is today. But if I look and compare and contrast with what it was back then, yes, there's more. Uh, I think they were more educated and there's so many more outlets and pathways literally as a player, but also as a fan to, you know, absorb and uh, have in your life this beautiful game either domestically or around the world with all of that coming in. And, and it makes for, like I said, a really interesting group of people that are soccer fans in the United States that continues to grow each and every day. I talked to both your brother and Darren Eels when he was at Atlanta United about these local idiosyncrasies. And in fact, they were talking more local, like, you know, Atlanta or sure. Detroit or wherever else, rather than necessarily on a kind of nationwide um, point of view. But it's interesting what you say. Do you, do you sense there's a kind of struggle for the U.S. soccer fan between do we try to adopt what the Europeans are doing and do we act like them versus, you know, we're American and this is the way that we do things over here. And yeah. actually, I say that about the U.S. soccer fan. I wonder if it's also true for players and perhaps even for commentators or pundits <laughs> like yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our I talk about this all the time. And, you know, our insecurity and inferiority complex is legendary. And, you know, it comes from kind of being beaten down and told what we are not. And also comes from coming from a culture where soccer isn't king. And uh, we have, you know, plenty of sports and leagues that are the most successful in the world that have an incredible head start. And so, yeah, we, we take things personally. But that's starting to dissipate, I'm seeing, with, with new generations that come on, like I said, that haven't had to fight the same fights and therefore look at soccer no differently than they look at American football uh, or you know, hockey or basketball or any of the other sports, baseball that we, that we have out there. And that's, that's gratifying for me to see. And eventually, the old guys like myself will, will die off and that insecurity will, like I said, dissipate uh, as we as we go on. But there's also, I think, something that, that isn't going away. And that is a, a collective understanding and ultimately an acceptance and a real ownership that comes from this version of the game that we have constructed over here. And a, a now kind of popular desire not to apologize anymore for what we aren't, either on or off the field. 
And for a long time, that wasn't the case. We were, you know, we are, were caught in this world where we, we, we want to be part of the world's game and therefore we're bending over backwards to try to accommodate and adapt and adopt the world's game in what we are doing. And in doing so, I think we've be, at times we became incredibly inauthentic to ourselves as a country and to even to our to our sport. And it's it, like I raise my hand. We've all done it before. And it's it's OK, because I, can't, I think it's part of the process. But I think where we've come out the other side is that we're not going to apologize. We do things at times differently, either on the field or off the field in terms of what we are doing. But it's still ultimately the same game and even leaning into the fact that we are bringing some of our American sensibilities to the game and that's okay. And not that you need my permission or anybody else's permission, but I'm, I'm excited and happy that we've gotten to a point where more are saying, yeah, that's okay. And we'll still take shots and people will laugh and roll their eyes at different things that we, uh, that we do. But I almost look at that now as a, as a badge of honor in, in the way that we are going about things. And we are, I think, at times proud disruptors of the game. And unlike every other sport, pretty much, or most other sports out there, we are coming at it from behind and we are coming at it from a place where we're not the best. And that's a very unique and different and strange place for American sports to be in. You've definitely rung a bell with some of the stuff that Darren Eels said there. I remember when I talked to Darren, he said, uh, I asked him, what did you take from the UK over to the US? Like, what was the most important thing you, you know, you learned while you were in um, English football that you took over to the US? And he said, you know what? Actually, just going with an open mind was the best thing. And I'll take a lot more back from the US to England if I ever go back there. Now, he's in Newcastle now, so I'd yeah. be inter very interested to see, like, does he follow either the approach that he took at Atlanta? He said it was the... Um, the biggest, longest pub crawl of all time or something. I forget the exact line, kind of saying basically it was just go and have a drink with fans. Um, yeah. But uh, but I kind of realized, yeah, okay, maybe I'm coming from a slightly sort of bigoted way. You know, my, um, you know, England is, uh, you know, we invented the game, everything should be like sure. this. And, and he sort of said, no, you've got to look at it a bit differently. Um, anyway, Alexi, I want to talk about what for me stands out as what probably must be the biggest moment in the history of US soccer or certainly the MLS. And that's mm -hmm. the signing of David Beckham. Uh, you were president of LA Galaxy at the time. I remember when this news hit, it was enormous. It wasn't back page, you know, it was front page. Everybody yeah. was talking about it. Tell me the story about how that came about. So I, I finished playing when I was about 33 years old, around, you know, 2003, 2004. And uh, I was working for the Anschutz Entertainment Group in that they were the owners of the team that I was playing for at the time, which was the Los Angeles Galaxy. I came to that moment that a lot of players come to where, you know, I walked into a room with our coach and uh, he said, listen, it's not happening for next year. And I said, well, you know, I'll take less money or whatever. And he said, it has nothing to do with money. It's just, you know, we're moving in a different direction. Fair enough. We've all had it at, at that point. And then you walk out that door and it closes and you can go a number of different ways if you're lucky. And maybe you have another team to go to. I, I didn't have another team to go to, but that door closed and another one opened in the form of going into uh, management. And like I said, I was very young, certainly inexperienced. But, you know, when, when young players come to me nowadays, I always tell them, look, if there is if you can recognize a jumping off point, take it because your career will 99.9% .9 of you, it will never end the way that you want. And so if you can see something that interests you, uh, really look long and hard of it. And I'm not a smartest guy in the world, but 
at least in that moment, I had enough sense to recognize that that was a jumping off point that was going to fuel and energize and provide me with other opportunities. And I went into the front offices of a number of different teams uh, up in San Jose with the earthquakes, then over in New York with the Metro Stars, and then turned into the Red Bulls. And then finally, I came back to the Los Angeles Galaxy as the president there. And with the Galaxy, we always talked about wanting to do something, well, always to wanting to do big, bold things. But we really wanted to do something that was not only going to fundamentally change the course of the Los Angeles Galaxy brand, but of Major League Soccer. And in the position of the Los Angeles Galaxy, we were in that position to do that. You know, you can you can do a bunch of different things, but signing not only one of the great players at the time in the world, but also one of the most famous people in the world. You know, that that checks a lot of boxes up there. Uh, easier said than done. But uh, the Anschutz Entertainment Group, we had been cultivating a relationship for a number of years with David Beckham through some different camps in anticipation of possibly ha this happening. Right. And then you just, you know, you throw a bunch of money at him and you talk about how fundamentally we are going to change the team and the league and the course of soccer by doing this. And you lay it all out in front of him. And I think he and his machine recognized that this was something different. This was something, you know, a little outside, uh, of, you know, of the box. And that's what we were looking for. And we found the perfect vessel to carry that change in the form of David Beckham. I'm not going to say that it all went perfectly. As, as you can imagine, David Beckham comes with a lot of baggage, literally with a lot of baggage. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we made the best of the situation and the far so outweighed, uh, the, the, the good so far outweighed the bad. And still to this day, we are f feeling the effects of that signing. And, it, and a lot of people look at it as, again, a seminal moment and a, a moment of change when the league kind of grew up and went in a completely different direction. Would you agree with that? Would you say it was the biggest moment in the history of the MLS? I think so. I mean, I think because of what it signaled uh, in terms of a intent, and it did plant that flag and say, we're going to do some bigger things that are going to cut through and resonate, not just for the soccer world, but for the full world. And also, we're going to spend money. We're going to spend a lot of money to do this. And look, we're we're all really good at spending other people's money, you know, uh, but actually getting the people whose money it is to recognize the value in doing that. That's a whole nother thing. And we had some really, really smart people working on this deal. And like I said, we offered him not a deal that he couldn't refuse because he could have gone anywhere in the world and done whatever he wanted. But I think we offered him something different than everybody else. And look, while it is still an emerging market, it's an emerging market for, again, a brand, one of the big brands in the world to tap into in a really unique way and continue to play and do all of those things. I will say this, as excited as we were, we were ill prepared for the hurricane that is David Beckham. And I don't know who could be prepared for something like that, especially a, a relatively young league. And, a, and it's still a, a team that had never, ever experienced like I said, that hurricane that comes in with all of the different things that are part of the David Beckham universe. And what would you do differently if, um, if you had your time again? Yeah, I mean, I, I look back, like I said, I was still pretty young and I was learning the business. Um, I think, could I have done this differently? I don't know, but I, at least I should have tried harder to make clear from the start that 
this was the Los Angeles Galaxy as opposed to this was the brand of Beckham. And it's and it's it's easy to say that it's next to impossible to do it. But I probably along the way we capitulated and we acquiesced in order to satisfy the brand of Beckham early on in a way that was detrimental to the functioning of an actual team and of a club. And like I said, it's it's natural to do something like that. But the power that David Beckham had and the influence that he had, and I know I'm using it in a negative sense. I mean, it's not always in that sense, but the power imbalance was such that it needed to get back and it just took too long. And ultimately, there was you know collateral damage from that hurricane and adapting to that hurricane, including the firing of coaches and ultimately the firing of myself. How much were you talking to the MLS at the time in the you know in the process of signing him before that got over the line, and then after it, were they presumably pretty supportive? Were you able to rely on them? Because as you say, you were selling this project to Beckham. You weren't just mm-hmm. saying come win titles at the LA Galaxy. You were saying grow the MLS, you know, he may or may not have been talking about or thinking about owning a franchise at some point in the future, but this was clearly a league play and not just a club play. Oh, absolutely. The league was involved for a number of different reasons, not the least of which this benefited the entire league. Uh, Two, uh, you you know, you mentioned the buying of a team. Part of the deal was the ability contractually to be able to buy a team. And, you know, that that for me is is the genius of that deal from a David Beckham perspective team perspective in what they were able uh, to negotiate because he had, you know, he had the leverage and power. And back then, you know, given what teams were selling for, they, they saw around the corner in a wonderful way. And I, I certainly don't begrudge him, but we had to give that up, which meant that the ownership at that time and the league had to agree to, uh, to do something like that. And then thirdly, we fundamentally had to change the, the rules of the league in order to accommodate somebody like David Beckham. And, they, you know, they, we now have designated player rules. You know, they've called it the Beckham rule for so long because, you know, I had wonderful people working with me, uh, including a man by the name of Sean Hunter, who, you know, uh, Anschutz Entertainment Group uh, is owned by Phil Anschutz, who at, at a time owned a number of different MLS teams. Uh, within that Anschutz Entertainment Group, we had visionaries like Tim Laiwicki, who said, listen, we're going to, we're going to go to that mountain that includes signing David Beckham. And then you had a guy like Sean Hunter who said, how are we going to get to that? And I'm going to figure out how to get to that. And in order to get to that, they literally had to go and change the rules, like I said, in order to sign David Beckham. And so, so many things emanate from that uh, moment when it comes to the trajectory of Major League Soccer. And, and I would argue even soccer in general because of what it meant and, you know, our 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 average ticket prices increased the way that we serviced people at the game completely and fundamentally changed the way that we thought about transportation with the team and security with the team, the media that was involved that in the past had never been involved covering the galaxy and major league soccer and all major league soccer was at a, in a completely different level. So everything fundamentally changed for the league. And so, yes, they were absolutely from start to finish, there was an association and a partnership with the league and and they were completely on board, obviously. Why wouldn't they be? So, Alexi, player to president to pundit, you're now in broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, which do you enjoy the most? Oh, man, I'm so lucky. I They can pry this job from my cold, dead, redheaded hands. Um, this is, you know, as much as I learned uh, being in the front offices and doing that, um, 
I think I've found my calling because this enables me to continue to perform and to entertain and yeah, go on stage and wear a costume and do all the things that I have loved to do my entire life without actually actually kicking a ball. You know, I did I had done some TV early on. You know, I took a a year off sabbatical, if you will, and and did some television and really kind of enjoyed it and then kind of fell into the. you know, the, uh, the front office work. And then, like I said, in 2008 ish, I got fired from the galaxy and immediately went into television and I haven't looked back since And It's been wonderful because players will chase and some of them never, ever find anything remotely close to playing. And I'm here to tell you that you will never find anything that is close to playing. But if you're lucky, and I consider myself incredibly lucky, you will find something that challenges you and energizes you and gets you off in a way that if you're lucky, it's equal to. I'm incredibly lucky because at times it's even more so. I get more jacked up and excited and energized at times with what I'm doing now than I did as a player. It's a very different type of feel and different type of energy, but I've grown to crave it and desire it and value it in a very different way than uh, than playing. And I'm very lucky. There's a lot of players that and, and ex-players that are constantly searching for that and you'll you'll never find it. So you got to go in a different direction, find something else that, uh, like I said, gets you off in the way um, that playing does. It feels to me like all three roles can rub people up the wrong way, right? You need a thick skin probably for all three. As a player, <laughs> you make a mistake, you're getting, yeah. you know, you're getting pelted. Yeah. As a president, everybody's after you. And as a pundit, you know, you say you like that team, you know, fans of the other team are going to have something to say about that. Do you enjoy that? Do you need a thick skin to do your job? Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't. Um, I, I, I'm here to tell you and to dispel any rumors out there. I am human. Uh, I do have sensibilities and I am, uh, you know, I don't like necessarily to have people call me horrible names either to my face or behind my back or online or whatever and i've had it all uh but you do have to develop a thick skin and i i do kind of in a certain sense see it as a as a badge of honor i enjoy titillating i guess I, i enjoy debate i grew up in a household uh where i was forced to debate and to you know, argue my position regardless regardless of what it was. Um, I love I love doing that. Our sport doesn't have enough of it. You know, I I don't set out to irritate people, but if it happens in the course of natural events, I'm cool with it, and it's it's okay. I long ago you know came to the realization and the understanding and the acceptance that there's not a chance in hell that I'm going to please everybody. Uh, or make everybody happy, um, or have everybody agree with me, and that's not even at least, my at least not intent. while you're on Twitter. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. And you know, I, I and social media is a whole other aspect of a, of a of a personality and a character uh, out there. And and again, just because I talk about you know characters and and, and entertainment and stuff, I want to be very very clear. It it doesn't mean that it can't be genuine and authentic and honest in the things that you are saying, but doing it in a way uh, and the words that you choose and the way that you choose it, um, 
I think that that's, you know, that's part of the art. That is part of the skill. I'm still learning. I can certainly get better as, as we go along, but you know, I love the ability, you know, I love contact and I love interaction. I mean, COVID sucked for any myriad of reasons, right? But the lack of personal interaction and contact with people and, and discussing and screaming and yelling and arguing, debating and going back and forth, it sucked to not have that. And I know we've kind of established a, you know, a culture now where we're able from different places to talk as we are doing today, but nothing replaces that personal human on human type of contact that I love so much that, that, that went away during, uh, during COVID. So I, I love that, that, and I guess you guys would call it banter, right? So I love that banter. I think we can all agree with that. Absolutely. Alexi, before you go, I can't not ask you about uh, the Qatar World Cup. We're now days, yep. not weeks away from it. How do you rate the U.S. men's national team chances? I'm, I'm very excited. You know, I leave next week. Uh, you know, we're recording this on November 1st and, um, you know, it's coming so fast and it's such a unique, as you know, World Cup. Um, you know, I'm going over there for Fox and we're going to blow it out from an American perspective. And last World Cup we did, we didn't have a, a men's team in it. And so we're obviously going to cover this, uh, this U.S. team. It is going to be the youngest team at the World Cup. With that comes you know, youthful exuberance and a youthful swagger that I think if harnessed correctly can really do some wonderful things and make us believe again after what I feel is the greatest failure in U.S. soccer history, which was the U.S. men's team not qualifying for uh, for Russia. So high hopes. Uh, I, I, I'm not cautiously optimistic. I'm just optimistic about this team and what they can uh, what they can do. And again, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, the ability to you know, continue to push that boulder up the hill that is American soccer and not waste these platforms that we have. It's it's a labor of love, but it's still a labor and it's gotten easier, but it's not easy. And it is still pushing it up that hill. And to the extent that this team can do some damage in the World Cup, uh, that would be that would be great. And we are now expecting our team when it goes to a World Cup to get out of the group. And, you know, we have wonderful players that are playing at some of the big clubs and leagues around the world, whether it's a Christian Pulisic or a Weston McKinney or a Tyler Adams or a Brendan Aronson uh, or a Matt Turner, all of these players, you know, Arsenal and Chelsea and Juventus and, and Leeds and different places out there that they are playing. That's all fine and well. But ultimately, when they get back, they have to function as a team. And as you know, the unique aspect of a World Cup in Qatar, that is going to be a story in and of itself from the moment that the ball is kicked and probably even beforehand about how we got to this point where we are in this, <laughs> this country the size of Connecticut and in one place with no traveling um, in a November and December World Cup. And it's just so different and unique. And I think those that are able to adjust and adapt the best, either teams or players or even broadcasters for that matter, are the ones that are going to ultimately win. So there is expectation, um, more than just hopes. There's there's expectation that the team will do well. To what extent is it kind of a free pass? And I say that because 2018 didn't qualify. So 2022, you know, the team's already done better than the last time out. And then as you said, it's the youngest team. That's because it's got lots of good young players, but it's clearly also with one eye on 26. Yeah. To what extent do you feel like Everything that happens now in this World Cup in Qatar should be viewed through the lens of this enormous event four years down the road. Well, it will be viewed through 26. And that, that in and of itself is not a problem. I think it is dangerous to constantly kick the can down the road to 26 
um, I, I actually think that 26, whatever success the U.S. may have in 26, I'm talking about the success of the team because I think in general it's going to be success and make a whole lot of money for FIFA and a lot of people out there. Having said that, whatever success happens with the team on the field in 26, I actually think is going to be relative to what happens in 22. And so, yes, we are seeing this team that is going to mature over the next four years and we can extrapolate it out based on what happens in 2022. But that, you know, to your point, that lets them off the hook. Okay, Uh, going to a World Cup is nothing new for the U.S. men's national team, even notwithstanding what happened last World Cup. That was, like I said, a failure, but that was an anomaly and an aberration. Getting to a World Cup is not something that we should break our arm, patting ourselves on the back for. By the way, getting out of a group is also not something that we should be. Uh, you know, screaming and yelling from the rooftops from. Yes, that is the first order of business, but we've gotten out of the group before. Getting out of the group and doing well in that group of 16 game, that is the next order of business. Keep in mind, we were a handball away. And if we lived in the era of VAR back in 2002 of the U.S. possibly going to a semifinal. So the soccer gods have to smile upon you. Uh, You have to have a good team. Uh, I think they have a good group. I think they have a good pathway to the round of, of 16. The United States, uh, England, Iran, and Wales, okay? You know, your your collective wisdom says points, you get, you get to beat Wales and you get to beat Iran, right? So that's six points right there, okay? The problem is, is that both Wales and Iran are also looking at those other two as their six points, right? And then everybody's going to take their chances against England. And while it would, it would, oh, it would make me so happy to beat England, okay? The reality is England is an elite team. That first game against Wales is huge for the U.S. I think they come out of the shoot with a three with three points against Wales and they're golden because then it takes the pressure off that second game. The U.S. can come in as, you know, complete underdogs in that very comfortable role. All the pressure will be on England. Problem is, is if you lose that first game against Wales, now the second game is against England and you know, a, a betting person would still put money on England finding a way, despite our, you know, actually very positive history when it comes to playing England in a World Cup. And I'm and I'm hoping for another wonderful moment against England, but I don't want to rely on it. So that's, you know, that's the analysis right now. But I think everybody is 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 very optimistic about this team for what that they what they can do in 2022. And yes, we are going to you know play it forward to 2026 because I think that's just natural and inevitable because of how huge that is going to be and how young this team is and how much they will have grown in the next four years. I can't believe you went there, Alexi. You're talking about uh, World Cup history, U.S. England. You're talking about 1950, aren't you? I mean. Come on, that's seventy-two years ago. No, no, no. Um, we got. You're talking we, about no, 2010, have, and you know, yeah, exactly. Not the exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll oh, take okay. it. We're you know we're, we're undefeated in World Cups against it. <laughs> <laughs> so let me put let me push you for for a prediction then. Okay. How far are the U.S. going? Yeah, I think they get out of the group. Uh, I think U.S. and England get out of the group, uh, and then. If they're facing anybody but the Netherlands, I'm expecting uh, to win this, win the group of 16 game uh, and then go out in the uh, in the eight uh, there. So, you know, I, I think yeah, things can happen, but I like this Netherlands team, as a matter of fact, and they do have a wonderful pathway when it comes to what's going on. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my prediction uh, right now is the U.S. gets out along with my uh, our friends, England. Uh, U.S. wins the group. England comes in second. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Right. Well, we better leave it there. Alexi, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
Would you like to uh, tell listeners where they can see more, where they can follow you? Do you want to plug your podcast? Sure, sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, I'll be heading over with Fox, uh, you know, with our team broadcasting it. And so, you know, if you're in the U.S., uh, that's where you will see me on a consistent basis. You'll be completely sick of me after the month of the World Cup. Uh, You can uh, check out my podcast, the State of the Union podcast. Uh, that I do a couple times a week where we look at the game, uh, the beautiful game through the lens of red, white, and blue colored uh, glasses. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and all the different things there. You can come and yell at me on all the social media platforms out there. And uh, who knows? I may yell back. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the guitars behind me. I continue to uh, to write and record and perform and put out music. I got a new album called Melt Away, which will be out on all the different platforms, your Spotify's and your Apple Music's out there uh, starting, uh, I think, on November 8th around. So right before the World Cup uh, kicks off. So it's straight pop rock. Uh, I've done many, many albums over the years for all three of my fans out there, including my mom. And so here's another one that I'm dropping on the world. There we go. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Alexi. And thank you, listener. All the best. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football.